Welcome to Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. We're here today with Jonathan Tate, who is a principal and the office of OJT, and he is the architect who designed the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, and he's here with us today. Welcome, Jonathan. Well, thank you for having me. So one of the things I wanted to talk to you about is this very space and how you came to decide about all the things that you had to with regard to opening a food museum. Yeah, well, it's, that is a, a big topic to talk about, we should say, and it's, um, uh, well, I mean, I, I should start, and the caveat here is that we had never done a food museum in this case, and so we were thrilled with the invitation to participate and, and be the designers for this project, and 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 took it on very enthusiastically and, and appreciated the um, who we were working with and what the uh, objectives and the... And the and the energy around the, uh, what would you know ultimately be the museum and the possibilities around that. So we started very excitedly on, on trying to figure out what is this thing and what should it be. And the building itself had been the Dryads Market. Yes. And the market actually opened in 1849. Yes, I know. And so part of our initial investigation involved, you know, as, as we were getting uh, familiar with the project and, and some of the early work we did was actually looking at that history and just seeing how uh, the site had evolved over time and, and it hosting a museum ever since 18, or excuse me, a market ever since 1848 and, and how, um, and this wasn't lost on anybody, but the the serendipity of it becoming ultimately a um, a food museum, which was really uh, seemed like a perfect match and, and a fun process uh, for us to engage in, right? Well, when we describe it, we always say this is our largest artifact. Uh-huh. Yeah. Because yeah. really, the, yeah. this building was built in 1912, mm-hmm. so that's over 100 years. Yeah, no, that's the way we went about thinking of the building, too. So as we... As we were working, uh, you know, early on in the process, just understanding the program, what the what the needs were for the museum, and both technically, but but again, aspirationally, what what is it that uh, that was trying to uh, that you all wanted to achieve here, uh, experientially, but also with uh, with the exhibits and what would be displayed and how people would engage with the material. We were at the same time, you know, as I mentioned before, working through the the kind of background of the building and it was you know it was for the most part a shell when we walked in here but but what had happened as with a lot of buildings is over time you get these layers of renovations and stuff that had kind of accumulated and so to some extent we we began using our imagination if you will of what what it would be like if you stripped it back to what it was back in 1912 right so and what what was what were the bones of the building right so how did we get back to that and of course, we had the benefit of it being a big open space because it had been a market, which was really wonderful. So it was designed to be open, so we didn't have to do any kind of special things to support the ceiling or the, the roof or anything no, like that. No, it, it was the perfect use for the building, I, I will say that, so it, or at least the, the way the, the museum were to operate, so, or wanted to operate and display material, was, it was worked out well for that. Although, you may recall when we first came in here, it had a drop ceiling that was at roughly 10 feet, mm-hmm. and over this is, you know, 
expanse of space. It was really low, and you couldn't you couldn't really get a sense of like, well, what's it going to be like in here whenever we open this up. So it was really, um, again, kind of a you know expectation there that it was going to be a monumental space, and I think that held true. So. Well, and also the volume has been wonderful because it's allowed us to hang signage and all sorts of things from the rafters, which that fabulous truss system Mm -hmm. that's up there. Um, And that has been really, really interesting because otherwise, what would you do with them? I mean, they really can be hung like signs so that you can see both sides of them and all of that, which is really wonderful. Yeah, I mean, it's it's operated, or at least from my perspective is operated perfectly as a fluid space to to engage with the material that you have here which is not um not traditional museum material in that there there's not a painting on a wall these are artifacts that are three-dimensional that you want to walk around and you want to you want to be able to sort of uh, you know see them at all size and experience them in a way that you would in their original setting and so this was a great platform for that for sure one thing I do want to talk to you about is the Brunings Bar. Mm-hmm. So this was something that we had to really think about because the Brunings Bar is the bar from what was the second oldest restaurant in New Orleans. And the bar was saved from destruction during Hurricane Katrina because it happened to be in storage at the time that the city flooded. But we still got it in multiple pieces and then had to decide to what level we would restore it. And, you know, there are all these theories of do you just leave it the way it is so that it tells the story of its entire life? Do you take it back to a certain level and only restore certain parts of it and make the... the changes very apparent or do you try to make it look the way it might have at some time at the same time we were making the decision to actually put it into use and not just have it be on display so i'd like you to talk a little bit about what went in your mind because we wound up actually installing it like a real bar and turning it into something that's been used since we've opened yeah yeah no I mean that that was one of the you know again sort of exciting elements of the collection that we and and maybe one of the few pieces that we were involved with the actual display of and installation of right Mm -hmm. and and it very much was conceived both as an artifact but also as a working component of what would be the restaurant and the kitchen area uh, in in one section of the building and so the and so in this, if I could step back a little bit and then talk a little bit about how the bar sits into this, the, the way we saw the layout or organization of the space uh, overall, if, if you were to imagine it, it basically, as we've described earlier, a large volume and just an open building, we had, we had specific program pieces that we began to use as anchors, and so the, the restaurant was an anchor. The um, the teaching kitchen, or at least as it was described at the time, was an anchor, and then this bar became an anchor for us too. So you had elements that sort of floated to some extent within the whole volume of the space, and they were right? fixed. They were fixed. They couldn't mm-hmm. go anywhere exactly. And so, uh, so the the challenge with the bar was to how do we make it float and and feel like an artifact, but at the same time. Uh, modernize it in a way and provide the the kind of things uh, both inside and around the bar that enable it to function 
in, in a way that it needs to function so that it can operate as a bar and, uh, and, and be an active sort of living exhibit in some ways. And so, so, we, so our approach generally was to how do we isolate it, make it sort of an island in a way, and then all of the back of house stuff and, and modifications, if we could disguise them or, or create a kind of um, you know, a strut system, if you will, an apparatus that held the back bar up, but it was away from walls. I mean, again, if, you, if you're here, you'll see it's intentionally sort of moved away from the perimeter so it doesn't, as conventional bar would be pushed against a wall somewhere, we pulled it away so that it, it literally felt like an object or an artifact in the space. And so that was our way of embellishing it and just saying, here it is. And in, in terms of making it operate, we can't really take credit for that. I think we had a really good craftsperson that spent a lot of time putting it back together and assembling it. And um, and, and to the credit of, of you all um, not actually not being dogmatic about what it needed to be in the end other than operational, right? And so that's where some of the beauty came in was just putting it back together in a way that it operated but not overdoing it, right? And, and um, as, as with the building, the bar is the same way. It's like these things... They're history, but they're also alive, and they're gonna they're gonna receive history, and and they're gonna create new histories, right? So the way the bar has been, you know, modified so that it can be used today with bar taps and those other things that weren't there before, is is new history, and so those are layers that the bar will accumulate over time. So it's not, I mean, it's and I say this a lot of times, it's not pickled, right? Like it's not there and preserved and and never meant to change it's that's what's beautiful about the bar it's like no it's going to change there's new you know dents in the wood and all the other stuff that have accumulated over time and and hopefully it's there for another hundred years right so that's the the kind of beauty of, of that and, and again architecturally speaking we were just trying to set it up so that it's people understood it as as that basically and that was just a spatial and compositional thing that we worked with and so let's talk a little bit about the kitchens. Mm -hmm. So we have in the restaurant section, we had the open kitchen with a counter all around it so that you could actually observe the food being prepared as well as tables and chairs in the open space. And then we have the demonstration kitchen which had cameras under the hood and all of that which make it... Um, possible for you to see what's happening in the pots and on the on the counter even if you're sitting in the space and we also wanted that space not to be fixed with uh, risers or anything so that you could still use it so that was why the cameras were very important but tell me about your thinking and how that would all fit in and flow yeah it, it's uh, I mean the one thing that that was you know, pressed upon us was just flexibility and adaptability over time, right? And so that any, anything that happened here, we, we needed to understand that it's going to evolve, it's going to change, the museum changes and evolves, and how we use the space needs to adapt and, and respond over time. And so, um, so again, we treated these elements, the bar and now the two kitchens, as, as fixed elements. They had to be the infrastructure associated with it, the power, the water, and so forth. You can't just pick up a kitchen and move it. So understanding that they're anchors in the space, it's it, once they're in place, and, and we spent a fair amount of time just trying to decide, you know, what was the most logical location for these fixed elements in relation to entrances and to service areas and those kind of things. And, and it, it's not, um, we didn't try to hit, hit you over the head with it, but there, there's a reason why everything is where it is. And, and 
anyway, when those were located, then the question is, is how do you define those spaces around it? So that became kind of an in interesting design challenge. And so the, so the demonstration kitchen had certain criteria about closure and, and how it was identified. Um, and so we, we, were, we, we had one approach over there, which was a fixed sort of hard wall situation with sliding doors. The, it's a more intimate space as a consequence. And so again, as you mentioned, there's no fixed risers, but there's tables and chairs and they move constantly. And you're right, the, the screen uh, was able to kind of amplify and you could see things. But the, but the, as with the whole museum, it's like things are meant to approach and get close to and, and feel tactile and, and, um, and it, it's not a, it, things aren't precious in the way that you, you, know, you might see in another, at least that's my impression of it. Um, the kitchen was the demonstration kitchen was the same way so the countertop it was important that it was we've, we rendered it as a butcher block but just to feel like it's a working counter and it's something again you can touch and it's not pristine necessarily and it's meant to again it's it's going to patina and age and you're going to see wear and that was the that was the hope and the aspiration our aspiration anyways is just to, that it, it again sort of uh, develops and, and has its own history and so that space was meant to be intimate in a way more like a home kitchen um, and so the butcher block is one thing and then the range and the in the way the the kind of cooktops work so it feels more like you're in a bar or in someone excuse me in someone's um, someone's kitchen in their home in some ways it has that uh, approximation the the kitchen for the restaurant's a little bit different in that it's more of a production it's sort of theater in a way different than let's say the demonstration kitchen in that the the surround uh, was was set up and 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 configured in a way that you're watching the prep work go on and then you're seeing the actual cooking happen behind that and that um, like it or not the people that are in that space are, are part of the act in a way right so you mm -hmm. you can see it and you can understand and and uh, appreciate what goes into the preparation of a dish that you're getting ready to receive and so we prioritize that bar area um, so that that you could sit and actually see down onto the counter and then in that case uh, the let's say the craft at that point was how do you get rid of the stuff you don't want to see in some ways and so the kitchen is is only cooking and prep equipment uh, for the most part and then we had a discreet sort of back of house area where the dishes went and the walk-in cooler was and the kind of things that didn't necessarily need to be out in the open uh, that were obviously part of the process but it's not as interesting to watch somebody washing dishes as it is to see them, you know, preparing the, you know, filet that they're getting ready to, you know, uh, grill or whatever it is. So that's the, that was the approach, let's say, with both of those. Okay, so I have more questions. I, I'm particularly interested in the objections that you heard that you felt that you had to overcome in order to have the space be the way it is? Like, did people say to you, this it can't work, you can't have this? Uh -huh. um, I, I, thinking about the curtain uh -huh. in particular, the scrim, uh -huh. and other kinds of things that maybe got that were left as artifacts yeah. of the building yeah. or any anything like that? Well, no, no, actually, actually it's an excellent question. It, it is uh, trying to forget all of those things, <laughs> uh, actually, but the uh, but now that you bring it up, I, I think the, the curtain's actually an interesting one to, to talk about, and, and in, in particular, there was a real challenge, you know, back to the restaurant space within the museum itself, and a, a desire for there to be fluidity between the restaurant which was a restaurant, a standalone in many ways, um, 
uh, operationally, let's say, and then the museum, and there were moments during the day that the two of them should feel seamless, and then there are moments when they didn't need to be, right? Right, because we, we encourage people when they come into the museum to go into the bar, get a drink, mm -hmm. carry it around with them while they're looking at the artifacts or looking at the stories within the exhibits. Um, and so that meant that you had to make it easy to go back and forth. Yeah, and that, which was, on the one hand, easy. You just kept it open, but the difficult or the challenge was was the moments when the museum wasn't open and you weren't encouraging people to go over there how did the how did the restaurant feel like a restaurant and not and not you weren't sitting at a two top and uh, you know across from somebody and feel like you're in this cavernous space and so the so how you control the scale and the experience of of being both in a restaurant but then also being in a museum was really i mean that was a, a fun thing to sort out from a design perspective. Well, I will you know. tell you that we discovered that the, the only people who truly didn't respect the curtain as a dividing mm -hmm. place mm -hmm. were children. <laughs> um, everyone else, uh, you uh, know, if you open the curtain, then they would go through. Uh, but as long as the curtain was closed, because, you know, we have that wall that door that goes into the shared bathrooms because the bathrooms are shared by mm -hmm. the museum, museum and the restaurant. And we had put a lock in that door to keep people from coming into the museum. Mm -hmm. And of course, thinking back on it, it's like, well, you just can step through the curtain. Yes. So what good yeah. does that door lock do? Uh -huh. But we totally stopped locking it after about six weeks uh -huh. because it just was meaningless. Nobody walked through it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and and that was. I mean, back to your your question about challenges and and um, th that was one of those because, as you say, it's like there's the you know how do you create that layer and, and and i don't i don't think there was ever a desire that you could lock off one space from another it, it's not security wise and i think there were there are ways that that worked itself out but the but there was a, a long conversation and, and sort of a, a challenge around uh the permanence and the rigidity of that separation right and so the uh, you know back to your question it's like there were long discussions about that should be a big piece of glass and you should be able to close this off because glass represents transparency but protection or, or separation and we one couldn't afford a big glass right. this is for those who haven't been here it's a really tall curtain um and uh, but the second thing is, is it just didn't seem appropriate either. And so what we started to look at were alternatives. And, and the thing that came to mind was the sort of theater scrim and, and how that was emblematic of the experience uh, that that was was being discussed about uh, your ability to both see into the museum, but but have the sense of separation and uh, and isolation at times from that space. But then but the capacity to sort of open it up into one big volume so that they did bleed into one another. And so uh, so when the curtain came up, that was a lot of fun, is figuring out, then you get into materiality and transparencies and all the other stuff. And, and I think for a while, there are a few people that weren't convinced that was the right thing to do. And, um, and the, also it, it raised, and I'm just remembering this in conversation, some funny discussions with the permitting office as well and about, you know, is a, is a curtain a wall? Is it not a wall? Is it a perceived wall? And so it was, uh, so that was entertaining, let's just say, to, to work through. And, uh, but, 
but ultimately when it was in place, I think it was a powerful, you know, piece and, and it, it lended, you know, the, the few fixed architectural elements, even though Kurt is not necessarily fixed, it's like it was pretty limited. I mean, all in all, it's fairly sparse. We were trying to sideline most of what felt like insertions into the building and and the curtain just had a nice presence to it and and uh, and still does. Even with what's been interesting is as the museum has filled out and the collection has filled out and things have, have started to gain volume and take up the volume of the space, the curtain's still sort of there and it's clear, but it doesn't overwhelm in any way, right? And then a lot of that's material, again, at the translucency, but also the the material is is sympathetic, I think, with the way the exhibit and the material, uh, excuse me, and the contents of the exhibit, so there's some parity there as well, so, yeah. And so, also, we left um, the floor, uh, and that really is truly a storytelling artifact. And um, and then we also didn't refinish all of the walls. Correct. Um, which um, really doesn't tell too much of a story, except mm -hmm. that it's just an old wall. Yeah. Um, but um, those were things that... Um, I think those are things that have evolved, too, with the use of the building. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But the... The floor is is something that I think is very telling. Yeah, and I mean you can explain this further, but the the floor itself actually we went to great lengths not to. I mean part part of setting up kitchens were that we needed underground plumbing, and to get underground plumbing through the floor means that we were going to have to tear up what was, uh, in in all of ours opinion, a beautiful old terrazzo uh, pattern, and and really you know part of the history of the space as as sort of told in the in the patterning and the organization of the terrazzo and the colors and um, the and so even in locating these kitchens we were trying to limit as much as we could any destruction of that floor so that it, it was still on display right and and I think some of the you know back to an earlier question about the pushback or, or challenges about how the space got developed I think um, telling people that we were going to leave it as it was and that we liked the rustic you know kind of roughness of it was was hard conceptually for people to get over at times I think and, and saying just leave it alone like you don't need to do too much to it although that said we spent a lot of time cleaning it and and whatever else but uh, but we could have spent a whole bunch of money grinding it down and making it look perfect repolishing yeah, it and all that but that wasn't yeah. the point right it, it sort of uh, it, it wasn't meant to look new it was it was a, you know again another component and part of the history of the building itself so and, and then when you were designing some of the the other finishes of the building mm -hmm. Did the fact that it was a, a museum and be a food museum also come in? Oh, for sure. And and I mean the I'm trying to think of good examples. I mean, well, one example that I'm thinking of right mm -hmm. now was the the burned wood, yeah, the charred wall, the charred yeah. wall. Yeah, and and so on the you know going back to how we needed to separate certain spaces and in this case the demonstration kitchen and what was the kind of device to isolate it so curtain didn't make sense in the same way it did for the restaurant and more of sort of a fixed wall condition was the right thing for the demonstration kitchen to isolate it from the or identify it let's say from the rest of the museum 
And in, in looking at that, you know, what do you clad that wall with? Is it just, is it just painted, you know, is it a painted surface or is it, does it have a materiality? And since there was, there was a couple of things, you know, if you, if you think about it, typical museums need wall space and they need places to hang things. You, you all certainly need wall space and places to hang things, but this was also an opportunity to use, you know, one of the few, let's say, fixed walls in the space that were added within the display space, use it as a way to kind of, you know, talk about or, or, or at least provide a platform for materiality and something that kind of distinguished itself from sheetrock or something else that was clearly new in that sense, but also using the charred wood, then, then you, which was the surface, is actually a burnt um, cedar in this case. Uh, that was a, uh, just a wood panel that went around that outer museum-facing surface of the kitchen. Um, you could start to layer stories around food on top of that, and, and frankly, that's not where we came from with that, but that's where you all took it, which was really amazing. We, we didn't think of it as literally the inside of a bourbon, bourbon barrel, barrel right? yes. <laughs> but we were thinking of it more as like, well, you know, isn't this an interesting material? It's tactile. It, it, it has an interesting texture. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and, it, and it's, it's dark, and it sort of recedes, and, uh, you know, the charred wood, but, but, you know, the fact that it's just like the inside of bourbon barrel. Well, that's great too. That's good. Yeah. So that was part. Of that so I liked how you all could have, you, you could bring it back into the food sphere and and make it a part of the museum and uh, part of the story of the museum. So I and I still like the fact that we have that kitchen in the old fish market part uh -huh. of of the market, mm -hmm. just because that was probably wet and full of ice and uh -huh. all of that sort of thing. Well, and and those. Again, those layers were part of the discovery process for us too, and and how um, there were there were even though it's a big open space, there's actually distinguished elements within like the fish market, and and which was an addition at some point to the building, and how it became kind of its own space and felt like a natural fit for. Well, we'll put the demonstration kitchen over here. That's great. Um, and then there are other elements of, around the space that are not dissimilar to that. But but identifying old and new was important as well. And so you, you mentioned the the walls that don't that aren't really that distinguished um, in certain areas of the building. It's like well, but for us they are. And and the because the, even the color selection in those areas. So if you were to come into the museum now and look, there are these big red walls that are both on the one of the uh, perimeter exterior walls and then the front wall. We, at least architecturally, identified that as all new work in some ways. And so the, it represented a, a point in time that was more contemporary history, not, not old history of the building. And so it got painted out a certain color. And that was one of the, you all picked the colors, but uh, we were sort of, clear about like we would like to identify this as something and then the parts of the building that weren't necessary that were different elements there's a kind of color coding that goes along with that so so it's our subtle ways of kind of identifying again these kind of layers that have have been here and then are getting applied as we move forward so yeah i want to thank you very much for talking about this because we were lucky enough to have something start from the beginning and design it. It wasn't something that we kind of just stepped into that was already existing. Mm -hmm. So a lot of those decisions were, well, I think they were better informed because you, 
were so good about actually talking them out with us, and uh, that I appreciated that a whole lot um, because it would have been really awful if we hadn't been able to talk about it oh, no. and it's find ways place, yeah. to find ways to work together. Yeah, yep. I want to thank you again and want to thank you for listening. This is Tip of the Tongue. It's part of the Nitty Grits Network of the National Food and Beverage Foundation. You can listen to it wherever you listen to your podcast and subscribe to it uh, in the same way. And we'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye.